Well, for most of the history of mankind, <clears throat> things like sickness, mental health, and disability have been seen as the will of the deities. As humans, it's very hard for us to feel out of control, and so it makes sense for us to say that there has to be a reason, a cause for the suffering that we undergo. And so this wood carving that you see above me here is a picture from the Middle Ages about a deity, a demonic being afflicting uh, someone. And this was kind of the idea that people held in the folk religion of the day. And so, just like in the story that was just read from John 9, we see that something negative has occurred. A man was born without sight. And so we, as humans, ask, whose fault is it? You ever find that happening in your life where something goes wrong and immediately you think, whose fault is it? Was it this man's sin, the Pharisees said, or his parents' sin that caused him to be born without sight? And this worldview of persons and persons with disabilities has previously been known as what's called the moral model of disability. Shortly summarized, it states that someone's immorality has upset the gods or the fates, and thus someone is punished with a disability, a sickness, or a disease. And this is why the men ask Jesus this question. They were operating within the moral model of brokenness. Now, this worldview is still very much at play in the minds of many. Just ask those with ongoing mental illness or disability or even those who've suffered miscarriage. You will hear experiences where somehow, some way, it was communicated that, quote unquote, God is the source of this brokenness. It may not be overt, but underneath, it often translates into, you must not be disobedient or this wouldn't have happened. You must not be obedient or this wouldn't have happened. When Kelly and I went through 13 miscarriages, it was amazing how many well-meaning Christians came up to give us encouragement, but like Job's friends, eventually discouraged us with an underlying message that there was something wrong with our walk and that's why we weren't having babies. Now, it is a piece of the false moralistic prosperity gospel that we discussed last week. It's the flip side of it, if you will. Good things happen to obedient people, Bad things happen to disobedient people. We create this false spiritual caste system that doesn't exist in Scripture. Now, something interesting happened in the course of history. Beginning in the 1860s, the Civil War broke out in the United States. And the timing of this war, coupled with the growing humanism and scientific worldview of the time, led many people to observe the war not as a direct act of the gods, so to speak, or of God, some still did believe that for sure. You can see that in their writings. But they saw it as the act of man. In the midst of this war, society was faced with a new dilemma. No longer did they see people who had limb impairment as an act of God, but they saw 300,000 amputations occur as the act of man. Now this led to a different viewpoint, a transition in the mind of, of uh, at least those in America. And this transitioned into a model no longer called the moral model, but now called the medical model of disability. Disability became a medical problem to be fixed rather than a moral problem to blame. But very quickly, this turned perverse because God was taken out of the picture and it removed the image of God contained within mankind and gave rise to eugenics models that led to things such as Nazis, the Nazis' final solution, which was not just against Jews, but against the disabled, the mentally handicapped, and others. It led to Planned Parenthood and its leader, Margaret Sanger, and her view that the mentally handicapped needed to be made sterile so that they didn't propagate the species. 
It led to gross, disgusting views that eliminated the beauty of human life. Now, luckily, fights against this kind of depravity over the last few decades uh, have caused the rights of persons with disabilities to be championed, and so the medical model gave way to the minority model in which we now stand as a society, a much better model, for sure. But if one looks closely within Christianity, especially when dealing with mental illness, depression, anxiety, and so on, there is still a vapor trail left of the moral model that says, for example, that the answer to mental illness is to discover your unconfessed sin, i.e., if you were more obedient, bad things would not happen in your life. Now, we see this in the Middle Ages that the church fought back against the science and the medicine that was happening in the church. They thought, man, this is, this is uh, magic, people doing things with medicine, and they fought against it. Here in 2019, the medical model is very accepted when it comes to physical maladies, but emotional and mental still have to fight hard against pastors who wrongly proclaim that if you take antidepressants or anti-anxiety meds, that there must be some unconfessed sin in your life, and if you were just more obedient, that would fix itself. Now, to be fair, in some small percentage of cases, that actually might be true. And that is why when I am counseling a person, I want to care for them holistically. I want to look at organic and physical issues, mental and emotional issues, family system issues, and spiritual issues. And in some cases, unconfessed sin is at the root, but not in all. And we can't think rigidly like that. Now, I bring this progression of thought surrounding disability to you this morning as an example of how false views of God, bad theology, false views of his scripture can creep into a person's worldview and cause massive damage. And so this morning, as we come to the second of three portions of this long chapter of Deuteronomy 28, I want us to keep in mind as we look at it that this can happen. Because what I believe we will find as we look at this scripture in context, weighed with other scripture, such as the story of Job and the story we just read in John, what we will find is that the answer to brokenness is a lot more complex than how we make it sometimes. At the same time, I believe that we will also see the goodness of God and the faithfulness and justice of his character. In this very hard section on curses for disobedience, I want to actually submit to you that we will see something glorious and something encouraging. Because what we will see is we will see the God that desires to bless a cursed humanity. We will see the God that desires to bless a cursed humanity. And then next week, as we finish off the third section in the chapter, we'll look more specifically at the cursing and blessings with their historical context of the Jewish people and see that God is one who keeps his promises and he can be counted upon to keep his word and how that affects the Jews historically and what that means for you and I eternally. Well, let's dive right in to the blessings and cursings of Deuteronomy, starting there in Deuteronomy 28, 15. You can go to Deuteronomy 28, 15. Moses says to the people, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall you be in your basket, in your kneading bowl. Cursed shall, you, shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration, and all that you undertake to do. I've never gotten this one in the fish you know, verse of the day. You guys ever get that? In the encouraging Caleb verse of the day? Never get this one. 
It says, until you were destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation and fiery heat and with drought and with blight and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish and the heavens over your head shall be bronze and the earth under you shall be iron. In other words, God won't hear your prayers and you won't have fertility of soil. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven, dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them, and you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And your dead body shall be food for all birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and there shall be no one to frighten them away. The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and scabs and itch of which you cannot be healed. That sounds terrible, doesn't it? Oof! The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind, and you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness, and you shall not prosper in your ways. You shall be only oppressed and robbed continually, and there shall be no one to help you. You shall betroth a wife, but another man shall ravish her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you shall not eat any of it. Your donkey shall be seized before your face, but you shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies, but, shall, uh, but there shall be no one to help you. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people, while your eyes look on and fail with longing for them all the day, but you shall be helpless. A nation that you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground and all your labors, and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually, so that you are driven mad by the sights that your eyes see. The Lord will strike you on the knees and on the legs with grievous boils, of which you cannot be healed, from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head." The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. And you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. You shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little, for the locusts shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with oil, for your olives shall drop off. You shall father sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. The cricket shall possess all your trees and the fruit of your ground. The sojourner who is among you shall rise higher and higher above you, and you shall come down lower and lower. He shall lend to you, and you shall not lend to him. He shall be the head, and you shall be the tail." All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We read this and we think, oh my goodness. This is not a text I'm going to use for evangelism the next time I meet a non-believer. Well, the first point for this morning should be very familiar to you. And this is what's going to set the stage for us of how to read this text. The first thing is the exact same first point I had last week. I want you to write it down again because it's so important. The blessings and cursing of Deuteronomy are statements of covenant and not contract. The blessings and cursing of Deuteronomy are statements of covenant and not contract. If we read Deuteronomy 28 at surface level, it gives us a great truth. Following God and living life in a way he laid out for us will be better for us. Now, as I presented last week, I think I can make a pretty great point against the idea 
that following God will always leave us healthy, wealthy, wise, or even secure and safe. But generally speaking, following God is good and not following God is bad. We can get this just from a cursory reading of this text. And I think that's probably how most people interpret it when they read it. Now, generally, this is true, and I think that if we took these points from the first two-thirds of Deuteronomy 28, we would be better off for it. We would walk away and we'd think following God is good, not following God, bad. That's good. Then one might ask, Hans, why then do we need to dig deeper than that? It could have been a five-minute sermon. We could all go home for the day. And the answer, dear brothers and sisters, is that we want to accomplish two additional purposes. First, we want to fight against as much bad theology as possible. And that is why the sermon last week very much contained within it an attempt to fight against the subversive American cultural Christian prosperity gospel that is present in so many churches and homes. We want to fight against bad theology. Secondly, though, we want to equip you and train you to be ambassadors, not just of John 3.16, not just of the Romans road, but of the whole word of God to a post-Christian humanistic world that wants to look at chapter 28 and say, see, you guys are full of it. Why would I follow your God? You see, we want to identify the false notions that are blinding the world against seeing the amazing nature and character of the God of the Bible so that we can assist people in stepping into personal relationship with him. Now, why this second point is so important when it comes to the text before us is that it can be used to create a false notion of who God is so very quickly. You see, the idea of just presenting it as, well, he's a just God, and so he'll punish wickedness, presenting that to a postmodern, post-Christian world, that don't work. Now, please hear me. It's not that something is wrong with God's word and it needs the likes of you or me to defend it, but remember who we are fighting against. Hasatan is the adversary. That's what his name means. Diabolos means the accuser, the devil. And he is one who desires to take God's word and twist it to make his opponent, our God, our king, Make him out to be someone he is not. And so it is imperative with these sections of blessing and cursing that we understand them in context. So that when a person says, what about this? What about the fact that your God wants to curse people? You can answer intelligently. If we do not, what may occur is that they can be twisted to create a superstitious view of who Yahweh is, of who Jesus Christ is, of who the Holy Spirit is. And we can quickly become an animistic people who operate out of a supernatural folk religion where we, like many tribal people the world over, need to appease our gods or they will be mad at us. I remember the first time I went to Burkina Faso and I was talking to a very gaunt woman who was an animist and she was obviously starving to death and she was lighting her crops on fire and I asked her, what are you doing? And she said, we didn't have a very good crop this year, so I'm burning some of it to appease the ancestors and the gods so that they give a better crop next year. Does that sound logical? No. But I would submit to you that we, as American Christians, we may not be burning our crops, but if you hang out with Christians long enough, you will see the same form of attempted manipulation. Life didn't go well yesterday, so if I just obey a little bit harder tomorrow, then maybe God will give me a hashtag blessed day right? It's the same form of superstitious folk religion. 
It creates a false formulaic view that perfect obedience to God equals a hashtag blessed life. And imperfect obedience equals a hashtag cursed life, but you never see that hashtag. And this trickles down into the poor person who has chronic pain, being asked by some well-meaning friend in their church, oh, your back's still hurting? Aren't you sh- are you sure you don't have unconfessed sin in your life? Or the person who has ongoing depression, well, if you really love Jesus, then you wouldn't need to be on those antidepressants. Now, the reason we know this is bad theology for sure is because we can simply look at Scripture and what it presents us. And I could give you tons of examples, but I'll just start with two. First, we have the story of Job. If you're unfamiliar with it, I would highly suggest you read through at least the first five chapters and the last five chapters. The book of Job, it seems like it's spelled like Job, the book of Job, right? The book of Job was written prior to the Torah possibly 400 years. And many theologians believe it to be the most ancient book of the Bible in terms of when it was written. It was written 400 years before Moses wrote Genesis. Obviously, Genesis speaks to a time prior than Job, but uh, earlier than Job, but this is the most ancient book, most likely. And so it gives us a view of the theology of the time. And in this book, Job is a man that is known to be, quote, blameless, upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Man, if you had that hanging out at a neon sign above you, wouldn't you feel hashtag blessed? That's how God sees you, blameless, upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Well, the reality is, as we'll see here in a little bit, that is how God sees you through his son, Jesus Christ. But let's just stick with Job for a second. The story goes that he was also a wealthy man who had a huge family. But as a background to this earthly scene, there is a scene that takes place in the heavens where God comes face to face with his adversary, Hasatan, in Hebrew means adversary. And Satan is given room by God to afflict Job in a number of ways, including some of the ways that are outlined here in Deuteronomy 28. He had boils, he had scabs, he lost his family, he lost his wealth. He was, in a sense, cursed. Now, this is not done maliciously on the part of God the Father, but strategically as part of the warfare he is waging against the adversary. You guys know the story. Job's friends come and quote-unquote comfort Job. To begin with, they do a great job of just sitting in his pain with him. They practice the ministry of presence, which, dear church, is a fantastic ministry for you to learn. Don't say a word. Just sit in the pain with the person. But then they try and explain the brokenness to him. Bad idea. Look with me at the theology of his friends. Turn to the right to the book of Job, starting in chapter 4. And we'll take a look at some of the statements that are trying to explain away why Job, this blameless, obedient man, has been cursed. Beginning there in the book of Job, chapter 4, verse 2, it says that Eliphaz, his friend, the Temanite, answers Job and says, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Oh man, sounds like a Christian right there, huh? Behold, you have instructed many and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling and you have made firm the feeble knees. Oh, what's that called, guys? What's he doing there? He's flattering him. Anytime flattery comes, be careful. Be careful. Wait for what's coming, right? Verse 5. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient, Job. 
It touches you and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember who that was innocent ever perished. Or where was the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. In other words... If you were obedient, this wouldn't have happened to you. You must be in iniquity, Job. Therefore, this cursing has occurred. Some of the words of his friends even match word for word what's stated in Deuteronomy. Look at Job 5.14. They meet with darkness in the daytime, speaking of the wicked, and grope at noonday as in the night. The very same words in Deuteronomy. Now, as you read on, this is the theology that they employ. Take a look at chapter 8, verses 2 through 7. Bildad the Shuhite says to him, uh, he must have been pretty short because he was only as tall as a shoe, the Shuhite. Dad pun, come on, give me some grace. Verse 2, how long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. This dude's kids just died. And his friends are coming and saying, your kids were just sinners. That's why they died. Can you even imagine? Look at verse 5. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. In other words, God's bored with you. He's asleep. You have to do some work or else he's not going to get off his butt for you. You see the terrible theology that's here, guys? Do not read Job as a place to gain your theology. (laughs) Only portions of Job. And though you be, your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great, he says. Job, just admit your wrongs and God will be kind to you. Just say you are a sinner and then life will be restored. It'll be hashtag blessed. But as we move forward in this back and forth dispute between Job and his friends, we end up in chapter 38. Go ahead and turn there. Chapter 38, where God has heard enough and he finally stands up and calls for silence. And we see the power of the Almighty God Verse 1, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. God stands up. And over the next few chapters, he asks Job questions that lead to a realization for Job that God is God and Job is not. And that we as humans can attempt to understand the purposes of God and place them into formulaic beliefs, but God cannot be contained. He is the one that decides good and evil, right and wrong, truth and foolishness. It is not ours to decide. It is not ours to find the cause. And so Job finishes with this, an amazing section of Scripture that I prayed multiple times, probably hundreds of times, in the midst of the miscarriages that my wife and I suffered. This section of Scripture brought me more encouragement than anything in the Bible. Job answered the Lord in chapter 42, verse 1, and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Job says, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak, I will question you and you make it known to me. He's saying, God said that to me. And then he says, 
I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now all this is so important, and man, I wish I could spend more time on it and break it down, but what I want you to see is this. That's the heart of humility. Look at what God says, though, to Job's friends who have used this false formulaic view of the idea that the righteous live blessed with no trouble and only the wicked see trouble. Look at what he says to them in verse 7. After Yahweh, the Lord, had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job shall pray for you. (laughs) Talk about eating crow. For I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Pretty amazing. The story of Job clearly shows us that God does not operate within this false formulaic understanding of blessing and cursing in which many of us believe and act. So we can look to the story of Job to wipe away this superstitious folk religion. But secondly, we have the story read to us earlier, the story of the man born blind in John 9. Why was it that this man had the affliction of blindness? The religious leaders ascribed it as God's response to either the man's sin or to the sin of his parents. Their very question lends itself to the theological lie that we are addressing today. How does Jesus respond? He doesn't say, well, let me tell you about it. He simply says, neither. It was so the works of God might be displayed in him. And what was that work? That the Son of God, the Christ, the Prince of Heaven that was soon to be inaugurated as King, could display the power and character of the kingdom of heaven over which he would soon reign. It was the work of healing, of restoration, and of giving God the Father glory. And Jesus seems to disregard the question of why. Some people think he's answering it, saying, well, God afflicted this man so that he could later use him as a parlor trick. That is not at all what he's saying. He's actually disregarding the question of why and replacing it with, for what purpose will it be used? He didn't even care about why. He says, for what purpose will it be used? I love how the man finally answers their question to call Jesus a sinner. He says, I don't know if he's a sinner. One thing I do know, I was blind. Now I see. What a great testimony. Take that as a testimony class, one-on-one right there. I don't know about all the things you're saying about Jesus, but here's the fruit of his work in my life. That is the restorative work of God as personified in Jesus Christ. Now, dear brothers and sisters, life is not so simple that we can wedge it into a rigid formula of obedience always equals ease and comfort, and disobedience always equals pain and discomfort. There are far too many variables for that to be the case. So we cannot simply read Deuteronomy 28, or the Bible for that matter, in that fashion. Deuteronomy 28 is not a formula for relationship with God, nor a formula to manipulate our way into a blessed life. What it is, though is a known and expected section of a suzerain treaty that speaks to God's covenant with his people. If you've been with us, you're tired of hearing about this, but if you forgot or you've not been with us, remember that a suzerain treaty is a treaty signed between a conquering king and the vassals or citizens that he has brought under his reign. It has multiple sections, including a blessing and cursing section, usually just a cursing section, 
to describe what will happen if, if the vassal does not keep their end of the covenant. And if you compare the cursing section to the blessing section, the first portion and part of the middle portion of what I read today reads as a mirror image of the blessings. What they would gain by obedience would be destroyed by disobedience. Now, just as the structure of the section on the blessings focuses the reader's attention on victory with Yahweh, the structure of this section that we read today focuses the reader's attention on oppression from Yahweh's enemies. Look again at Deuteronomy 28 if you will. You can go back there and look at it, or you can see it on the screen there. In Deuteronomy 28, verses 30 and 31, it says, you shall betroth a wife, but another man shall ravish her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. And on and on it goes. It says, these are the cursings that will occur for you. But the wording here is very similar to what we read back in Deuteronomy 20, if you'll recall. This was the law regarding warfare, and it is directly from the mouth of God through Moses for those who are allegiant to Yahweh and who know that he fights on their behalf. Look at what it says there in Deuteronomy 20, verse 4. For Yahweh, your God, is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. Then the officers shall speak to the people, saying, Is there any man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in battle and another man dedicated. Is there any man who has planted a vineyard and has not enjoyed its fruit? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in battle and another man enjoy its fruit. And is there any man who has betrothed the wife and has not taken her? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in battle and another man take her. Notice the difference between the two. When allegiant to God, his desire is to bless, not to curse. His heart is even to free them from the burden of the curses. But when they turn their back on his covenant and seek their own way over generations, as we will see next week, the very opposite will occur. As a people, they will suffer the curses. Because as we looked at last week, none of chapter 28 is individually stated. It's stated to the people of Israel that they, over generations, will keep their covenant. God will have removed his protective hand and, in a sense, given them over to the adversary if, over generations, they do not keep the covenant. And the entirety of this section is meant to remind the people of Israel that they are entering into an intimate and personal covenant with their God. And this is so important because we can first see a little bit of continuity between Israel of that day and ourselves, the church today. You can write this down as the second main point. Like Israel, we follow that same faithful covenantal God who desires to bless his people. Now, in a moment, I'll show you the area of discontinuity where we are far different and why that's a blessing and an encouragement to us today. But first, let's look at the fact that like Israel, we follow that same faithful, covenantal God who desires to bless his people. The point of this section is that Israel is entering a covenant relationship with the creator God, the God of their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what makes this treaty amazing is who it is between. We want to focus in on the details because we are contract-oriented people, right? We go rent a car. What do you sign? A contract. You go get an apartment. What do you sign? A contract. And you focus on the small text to make sure to see how they're going to get you. And that's how we've been raised as a culture. And so we view this the same way. But the point of this section is not about the detail. It's about who it is between. 
You see, in all other ancient Near East suzerain treaties, it is always between a human king and a human set of vassals. And the blessings and cursing section would be enforced by the gods on behalf of the human king. The pagan gods were brought in as enforcers by the human kings to enforce the human king's will. But dear brothers and sisters, what this covenant document in Deuteronomy shows us is that Yahweh was a completely different God. He was not distant from his people. He was not operating solely through a human king. He was a God that wanted relationship with his people at a deep and intimate level. Remember that this was to be one of the points of the Israelites walking in obedient relationship with Yahweh. They were supposed to do so so that the surrounding nations would look at them and be in awe, not just of their obedience, but what it spoke to, their relationship with their God. Remember this in Deuteronomy 4.7. This is what they hoped the nations would cry out when they saw the obedience of the people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him. And this is one of the areas of continuity between the Old and New Covenants. I don't know if you guys know this, but the word testament that we always put Old Testament, New Testament, it's actually better translated covenant. When you read the Old Testament, you're reading the Old Covenant. When you're reading the New Testament, you're reading the New Covenant. It's actually bad translation into the English to get it to testament. But this is where the continuity begins to break apart between the two covenants. For those at the time of the Old Covenant, it was mind-blowing that the Creator God would want a direct relationship to a people and that a king was simply a non-necessary ornamental figure. But even more mind-blowing was what was promised in the New Covenant that was to come. It was not that this New Covenant removed the Old, but rather it built upon it and fulfilled it even further. It took the intimate relationship between God and His people and promised that it would go even deeper. Everybody turn to Jeremiah. Go to Jeremiah 31, 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. Let's read about this promised covenant. For you see, what was promised in the old covenant about the new was that this new covenant would be one even more personal with regard to intimacy. Not only would it be God taking away the middleman and being close to a group of people, the new covenant promised in Jeremiah says that God would even get more personal. He would go even deeper to the individual. This is Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Pause there. What covenant is he talking about? The one that includes the blessings and cursings of Deuteronomy 28. Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Now, pause there for a second. That word know is yada. It's more akin to the knowledge that a husband and a wife have of one another than it is the knowledge, mental assent knowledge, that we talk about in the Western world. 
Each one will know, intimately have relationship. For they shall all know, yada, know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The promised new covenant would not be based on humans attempting to keep the external regulations of God with white-knuckled obedience. We can read Deuteronomy 28 and very quickly get there. I need to obey God dry harder next week, Hans. That doesn't work that way. It wouldn't be based on this external regulations and white-knuckled obedience. It would now be men and women who had been given the spirit of the living God within their own hearts. Now, guys, this is not the, I accepted Jesus as Savior into my heart, now I've got him boxed up and he's mine and he gets to do my bidding, which is often how we talk about it. This is that the spirit of God, the overwhelming, purified fire of God dwells within the believer to transform their desires and draw them closer to the values and worldview of God himself. It would mean that men and women would have a gift that intimately connects us with Yahweh and therefore intimately connects us with one another. It is not just me and God. It is first that and secondarily connected to everyone else that has that same spirit. And this promise was that we would become the body of Christ with many members, each member intimately connected to Christ and each member intimately connected to one another to form the tangible, incarnational body of Christ on earth during the church age. We don't see this in Jeremiah, but Paul and all the writers of the New Covenant, the New Testament, tell us that. God places his spirit within us, not so that we can claim authority over God, but so that the authority of God will slowly but surely transform our hearts into his own. It is not the spirit has given me peace about this, individual autonomous authority. It is that the spirit has given us peace about this. It is the work of the spirit within us to transform our desires into his own. It's the work of the Spirit within us and within God's people that is sanctifying us and changing us into people that are obedient by faith to a loving and good God. The writer of Hebrews gives us a ton on this, and I wish I could read you multiple chapters, but for the sake of time, we're going to just go to a few. Why don't you go with me to Hebrews 8 in the New Testament? Hebrews 8. Verses 6 through 7. And I'm giving you guys enough scripture that this should be enough to chew on for the entire week. To connect these points and see them throughout the narrative of scripture. In Hebrews 8.6, the writer of Hebrews says this. Speaking of the old covenant and the new covenant in comparison, he says in verse 6, But as it is Christ, the anointed king, the Messiah, has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant, the one with the blessings and the cursings, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second, for he finds fault with them when he says, and then he quotes from Jeremiah 31. It says in verse 13 there, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. You see, the author is seeming to tell us that there is this transitory period going on. We have been established in the new covenant, but 
it is not fully here yet. Because even though we have the law of God written on our hearts, it is not fully to the place yet where none of us need to be taught. There is the internal conviction inside of us by the Holy Spirit, but we still are in the midst of this church age, transitioning into the fullness of the new covenant. And it is then that we see the author then line out the fullness of God's work of salvation. You can read through chapter 9 on your own, but let's look at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, the very thing we celebrate at the communion table, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Amen? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. You see, just in this section, we see the work of salvation. We see justification in verses 11 and 12, how God has made us new, how he's once for all purified us and brought us into eternal redemption, secured it for us. Verses 13 and 14 speak to the sanctification, the ongoing work of transformation that's occurring, purifying our consciences from dead works to serve the living God in our daily life. And verse 15 is speaking of the glorification that is going to happen, the promised eternal inheritance where we step into eternity with the Lord. And then he continues down in verse 27, look there with me, with the promise of what is to come. And just as it is appointed for him or for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Are you eagerly waiting for Jesus Christ? Or is the rapture or your view of eschatology simply your way for a hashtag blessed life? Are you waiting for Jesus, our King, to come and establish his kingdom? and to allow you and I to rule and reign with him in righteousness, justice, and truth. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we deserve every curse in Deuteronomy 28. I deserve it. I deserve boils. I deserve to lose my home. I deserve to lose my wife. I deserve to lose every single thing because it all originates with the creator who is the source of all life and goodness. And by my disobedience prior to knowing Christ, I said, I want none of what you give me, which in essence is cursing myself. We deserve the curses. But by his work on the cross of Calvary and his resurrection three days later, he crushed the oppressing power of the kingdom of darkness that kept us in rebellion. By his power, he saved us from that kingdom, taking us as beloved captives, justifying us forever in the eyes of the Father and bringing us into the kingdom of light a kingdom of covenantal love, righteousness, and justice. And in that work, he made us his own in covenantal love. He initiated and inaugurated Jeremiah 31 and the promise of the new covenant that God 
cares so very much about you personally that he has given you a savior in Jesus and he has pressed into your very being his Holy Spirit so that you can draw close to him. You see, this is the place where the old covenant and the new covenant do diverge. You can write this down as the third main point. Unlike Israel of the old covenant, the curse is no longer possible for those in Christ. Unlike Israel of the old covenant, the curse is no longer possible for those in Christ. If we get this, if we truly understand this, this will change your walk. You won't be looking over your shoulder waiting to see if God will crush you with his thumb. Waiting to see if he's frustrated with you. Waiting to see if, oh my goodness, was that a level one sin or a level five sin or a level 10 sin? What's he going to do to me? Instead, you'll walk in freedom knowing that when you falter, he is a good and loving father who comes alongside you and says, when we make a mistake, we fix it. Let's fix this. He's a good and loving father that comes alongside you and says, that wasn't a bright move, but let's walk together to figure out how to do this better next time. You see, the new covenant has within it the promise of God's Holy Spirit, which is sent to dwell within his church. And the way that occurs is that the Holy Spirit dwells within each one of us to individually connect us to the Father and the Son and one another. That's why I like saying the phrase, each of us has a measure of the Spirit rather than the Spirit. Even though biblically it's correct, we each have the Spirit within us. I think we as Americans take it way too individualistic when we say, well, it's me and Jesus and I've got the Holy Spirit contained within me. See where I'm going with that? So we do have the Holy Spirit in each one of us, but we also dwell together, connected to the Father and the Son and to one another. When that occurs at the moment of justification, when you are given the Holy Spirit, because it happens then, there is no second baptism of the Holy Spirit. You cannot find it in Scripture. Don't have time to go into that today. When that occurs at the moment of justification, there is no further question of blessing or cursing. To be part of God's people is to exist only in the blessing of being one with God. For on the cross, Christ dealt with all our disobedience, all our sin, and because of his great mercy and power, he forgave us for joining up, even unknowingly, with the kingdom of darkness. This is why Paul said that we are blessed when we are justified. This is Romans 4, 7 through 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Dear brothers and sisters, if you are sitting in the middle of the pig slop in the worst day of your life, can you still post on Instagram, hashtag blessed? Absolutely. You don't need a vacation photo to show the world that you're blessed. Why? Because you're a child of the Most High King. You've been justified by the work of Jesus Christ. You are blessed because your sins have been forgiven. We are blessed because we have been saved. We have been forgiven. We have been adopted. We are blessed. Amen? Paul continued this line of thought in his letter to the church at Galatia with this statement. This is Galatians 3, 7 through 9. We talked about it last week. Know, that this, uh, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. You see, as a truly converted disciple of Christ, 
you don't need to worry about whether the blessings are coming because of your obedience or if the curses are coming because of your disobedience. You are already blessed along with Abraham because God has chosen you and you have been given the Holy Spirit. And as a response, your allegiance is to Christ by faith. And you, as a true Christian, cannot sit long in disobedience. People ask me all the time, how do I know if I'm saved? Well, can you sit in disobedience for very long? If you don't have that gnawing, creeping conscience of the Holy Spirit saying, the Lord loves you, his kindness draws you to repentance, why are you still sitting in the pig slop? Then I would say to you, you're not saved. If you can sit in that for a long period of time, Hans, how long is too long? Is it one week, two weeks, three weeks? You have to decide that. The reality is, as a Christian, you are constantly called to obedience even when you stumble because you want to please this good and loving God who has given everything for you and for me. You're already blessed along with Abraham. Let's continue in what Paul says in Galatians 3.10. He says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You see, dear brothers and sisters, this is good news. God saw us in our cursed state. All of humanity was cursed. We were disobedient to him, removed from relationship with him by our desire to be an authority over him. So God, rather than turning a blind eye, sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice upon which we could place the sin that we had committed. We could even place the curses that accompany that disobedient sin. And as the atoning sacrifice, Jesus declared once for all that we desired to be part of God's covenant people. And it was through him that the Father welcomed us back into relationship, not through our own works. It was not through your obedience that God said, okay, join the team. It was through the work of Jesus Christ. Paul even references here in Galatians the spirit spoken of in Jeremiah 31. Because the fullness of the gospel, folks, is not just the cross. It's the cross and the resurrection and the enthronement and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. In all this, we have become the people of God, taking part in the new covenant that he has made with us. And because of this, you no longer have to worry about whether you are blessed or cursed. You are not locked into an animistic, superstitious Christianity that comes with an act of obedience or disappears with an act of disobedience. It wasn't even that way with Israel or the Old Testament. For them, it was ongoing disobedience over generations in a direction away from God. But see, the idea that the church will do that, Jesus killed that quite quickly when he said, the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. Once God has declared you a part of his people, you are blessed. And if you are his, then not even the devil, not even the accuser can accuse you to God. As children of Abraham, the original blessing given to Abraham lands upon you. 
And I want you to read this, not as seeing it for the Jewish people, as we as evangelical Christians often do, not seeing it as just for Abraham, but I want you to read it in connection to your relationship to God and against your adversary, the devil. Now the Lord said to Abram, remember, we are children of Abraham by faith. He said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Notice this. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. If you have an NASB, it says those who curse you and your family, I will curse. So when the accuser reviles you to God, when he steps into your mind and heart and says, see, you're not obedient. I'm not sure God even loves you. God declares him cursed, not you. The book of Numbers shows us this perfectly. It has the story of a pagan holy man, a pagan prophet named Balaam. He was known throughout the ancient Near East for being a specialist in the animistic, superstitious view of the gods to such a point that people knew that he could read the gods' favor through entrails and all the magical arts. He was an Akkadian prophet, most likely, and he was known to such a point that the king of Moab hires him to come and bring curses of the gods down upon Israel. But as the pagan prophet goes to call down the wrath of the gods on Israel, he instead utters blessing. And I think that one of the lines from his first blessing is so appropriate for our teaching today. This is what he says as he's blessing Israel. This pagan prophet says, how can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? You see, the gospel is that Jesus took on the curse that was deserved by you and I. And because of that, the Father calls us blessed. He's declared us forgiven and righteous. I wonder where I, because of misfortune in my life or having a bad day, have called myself cursed when God has called me blessed. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How many of us are stuck in the muck of our Christian walk because we're sitting there thinking that God is disappointed with us, that God doesn't love us, that God is frustrated with our disobedience? We are cursing ourselves at the very time that God is saying, why are you cursing whom I have not cursed? Why are you cursing the one upon whom I've pronounced blessing? This morning, we can read this topic of blessing and cursing and see it not as a statement of individual spiritual transaction where we have to be looking over our shoulder for the curse of God. Instead, we can read them as they were intended as statements of covenant allegiance that point the way to Christ and his removal of the curse through his own blood-bought salvation. Today, we can be assured that we do not follow a God who is quick to bring his wrath upon us Guys, even the Canaanites, who he used his Israelites to wipe out, he gave them 400 years of disobedience to repent because he is long-suffering and patient and loving, steadfast, merciful. We don't have that God who is quick to bring his wrath. We can be assured today that we follow the God that desires to bless a cursed humanity. That's the God you serve. If you are a person that finds yourself walking in ongoing rebellion and disobedience against the Holy Creator God, then the truth of Scripture today is that you still sit within the curse of sin. One day at the last judgment, 
where you stand before your creator God, that curse will be finalized as you are cast from the presence of a loving creator God into eternal condemnation. That is the only curse that is left after the cross, is a choice to turn your back against the creator that is calling you home. The answer to this curse has been given to you today. If you sit in this room and you are not a believer, know that the answer to that curse has been given to you. Give your life over to Jesus Christ and declare your allegiance to him as he has declared his love to you. Declare your allegiance to him as savior and king above all else. Accept that his death was the death you deserve, that his resurrection proved that he is your king and receive his Holy Spirit so that you might be joined to him and his people. If you want to do that today, one of the elders of our church would love to pray for you. They're going to be in the back there and they would love to pray with you and talk to you about what it is to be a disciple. Don't walk in the curse any longer. Allow Jesus to take it on for you. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ though, then the work of justification has been accomplished. Amen? It's not based on you continuing to obey. Obedience is a natural outcome of being justified. And growing in that sanctification, desiring that growth is a natural outpouring. The work of glorification is assured by the Spirit of God. And in the meantime, between justification and glorification, the work of sanctification is a work of the Holy Spirit, the Word and the body, The Holy Spirit within us changes our desires to be for Christ above all else. The Word allows us to be transformed and renewed in our mind and heart as we learn it and are submitted to it. And the body of Christ assists us to be accountable to the Word and to cause transformation through the crucible of friendship and fellowship. If you found yourself failing or fumbling in disobedience this week, I would call you to hear the blessing of Abraham. Do not curse yourself. Do not curse who God has blessed. Instead, bring it to the table of communion and realize that you don't need to make up the relationship because it is severed. You simply need to lay it at the feet of Jesus and know that he is your father who is proud of you for bringing forth your confession and your repentance. That he hasn't turned his back on you. He loves you and wants to walk with you. Confess it to Christ and confess it to those you're taking communion with. Allow the forgiveness of Christ to reign in you and let it compel you toward obedience in the week ahead. For dear church, we do not follow a God that is quick to curse us. We follow a God that desires to bless a cursed humanity and is quick to bless you and I.